Okay. Okay. Beyond the outline, questions on the passage and on the Feast of Booths. Oh, Isla. Did they always carry stones around with them? Seems like they're always ready to stone somebody. I mean, even in the um, temple, they're picking up stones. So do they... I think that part of the world in Palestine, stones are nearby. I mean... And this isn't 30 seconds. I mean, in part, they try to drive you outside. They're not actually going to stone him in the temple. They're going to try to drive him to the city outskirts and stone him there. So um, that would be the whole procedure envisioned. But yeah, in that part of the world, there's there's stones pretty handy and nearby. Um, so fair, fair question. Okay. Any questions? Oh, no, 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 my, my microphone. Is the Feast of Booths like October-ish? Um, yeah, depending, depending on how we do the calendar, October, November. Yeah, it's, it's harvest time. It's the seventh month. Their months follow a, a, a lunar cycle. Um, and so best we could put it would be like end of October, something like that. And so they all went camping for a week, in essence? They did. Well, Jerusalem isn't going to have enough space to cover everybody as well. Um, in fact, we, let's go to Nehemiah. I went to read it, but we ran short of time. Nehemiah tells us of this being celebrated. The people returned from Babylon, and they, um, they forgot about this feast. And uh, they read the book of the law, and they learn of it, and then they keep it. Um, let me find it here. Yeah, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. Okay. Verse 14. Let's read it starting at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other lofty trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof or in the court, in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. Now look at this. For from the days of Yeshua, or Joshua, the son of Nun, to, the day, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. It's remarkable. Remarkable. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the fast, the feast, seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So it's, it's strange. It's a seven-day feast capped by an eighth day. The Feast of Booths literally is eight days. But the feast and celebration is seven days. So, um, Isla. What does that mean, a solemn assembly? Uh, holy convocation, it would be, it's, it's similar to a Sabbath. It's, it's, you don't do ordinary work. You're setting the entire day apart. Um, and you're just focusing on worshiping God. It's, it's, 
I think the levity and the rejoicing and the celebrating and stuff dominates the rest of the week. But that first day is serious business. And then you, it kicks off a week long of celebrating. Um, and it's closed by a solemn assembly on that eighth day at the end. So you start your week of, you know, camping and partying with a solemn assembly, and then you close it with a solemn assembly. Yes, Deb. Um, my question is, when you read this in uh, Leviticus in the Old Testament, you yeah. hear about um, food offerings yeah. and uh, temple-type stuff. Yeah. Will, during the um, millennium yeah. is when they're going to, all nations going to yes. do that, will yes. there be temple stuff or just the big like evangelistic service no ezekiel makes it clear there should be some sort of sacrifices or offerings and i know people freak can freak out about this but the point i'd make and we made in leviticus they're all types of offerings and not every offering deals with sin there's free will offerings drink offerings grain offerings um so christ's once for all sacrifice for sin is not to be repeated amen hallelujah praise the lord why on earth there couldn't be the other types? I see no nothing fundamentally blasphemous about that. The, the basic picture of the sacrificial system is God doesn't eat, but he is pleased by the aroma. So it's the picture as close as God gets to eating is the sacrificial system, which is why temple worship's kind of like fellowshipping with God. And the whole point is the people are eating but they're also giving God his first fruits portion. So you're burning some of the some of the flour, you're burning some of the oil, some of the fruit, and it goes up as a pleasing aroma. And so the picture is the people with God are enjoying and rejoicing in the first fruits of the harvest. The harvest has been brought in. And yeah, I don't see any reason why something like that couldn't move forward and continue. And, and those, that, those offerings sometimes were what fed the Levites. Oh yeah, because they get their portion of the food. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, the Levites get their share from the offerings. No, the, the amount of the amount of bulls and lambs and rams is ridiculous. This is huge. Uh, so it basically is saying something like, "Go and enjoy this, but also give thanks and give God His portion um, as well, as well." So, so yeah. Oh, who's okay? Siobhan, then Lee. So in Zechariah 14, yes. um, you, had, you read it and then mentioned that in the millennial kingdom, we will also um, go up and, yeah. okay, so then help me with the timing and maybe what Zechariah is what referring to because um, <laughs> it, said, okay. it says, and if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, da, 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 how sure. could they not? Because they're still... So here's, here's a short view of the timing. Um, Christ returns with an army in white, which will be us, to battle the forces of the world. It's Revelation 14. He defeats his enemies, and those who remain alive enter into the kingdom. And they're, they're believers. They're going to have kids during this period of time. And we know that at the end of the, the, the thousand years, Revelation 21, the the nations are again deceived. So nations who can be deceived can also decide not to go up to keep the Feast of Booths. These are not glorified people. These are not sinless people. Um, so that's, that's why that could happen. And presumably towards the end of this time, something like that will happen. Um, but I doubt it'll start out that way. Okay? 
That's that's my short short overview. Okay, and then Lee. Well, I always, I'm kind of morbid, but I when I think about, when you see how many animals are killed, yeah. and you think, what a mess that would be, yeah. and a lot of blood, because they have to bleed them. Yeah. There's no blood being used up there. And so I, I think I did, I don't know if I made this up, but I did some research, and there's like a tunnel system and a, a place where it takes all this gore and blood out past the city limits to like a place where there's gore and disgustingness if you say so yeah I'm, 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 I, I, i've not heard of this you might well, be right yeah but you gotta think somebody must you'd have to plan for it because they'd be just wallowing in it yeah, like right of a, okay. a sewer system for yeah. blood. So yeah. I, I do not know. I'll have there to was, look that up. There oh, was a process. Like I, knows. I yeah. actually just was listening in my uh, or I listened. I've got a program that I uh, go through the Bible in a year on, uh, and it was just going through Leviticus. And there is actually like an outside the city, and it's like it, the stuff is taken out. That's part of the process. Okay, is that there's like a special place where all of these ashes and the fatty ashes and the waste and yeah. all of the, the dung from the animals and yeah. all of the refuse, all the parts that don't get burned or eaten by the Levites. Uh, that was all physically transported outside of the outside of the city, outside of the camp. There you go. Zeb is Lee's footnote. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Um, any other any other questions about the Feast of Booths or what's going on here? Mason. So the celebration lasts seven days. Is it known entirely how long Jesus was there? Because uh, the following verses we haven't gone to yet says not until halfway through the festival did he go up to the temple courts and teach. So yeah. would he have been there? Yes. All seven if he had, of those if days. If he had not have been there, he would have disobeyed and broken the Mosaic law. I mean, that's part, if we understand the backdrop, John is setting up drama. He's setting up conflict. Jesus is trying to avoid the Jews who are trying to kill him. But the Feast of Booths, subtext, which he is obligated to obey, is coming up. What will Jesus do? That John, then John's narration sets up the conflict. Jesus doesn't want to go near the Jews. He's avoiding them. Jesus is going to have to go near the Jews. What will, and then his brothers push it even further. You should go up publicly. You know. um, and then we find out, okay, he goes up covertly. He goes up privately. So no, he would have been obligated. The law of Moses is quite clear. He, he, so, and since we know he never sinned, we can be quite confident he was there the entire time. He doesn't publicly reveal himself in the temple until the great day, the high day of the feast. So that, that's we know. But he would have been there the whole time, yes. Um, but he wasn't where they'd be looking for him. Again, I'm filling in some of the blanks, but given the size of the entourage that his family traveled in in Luke 2, a, a large enough entourage you could not see your... 12-year-old son the entire day and yet think he's somewhere else in the group. That's how big the group is. He's not where they'd be looking for him. Um, so he goes up privately. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, Jerry. In my notes, it went to the eighth day, the feast. And when that's when Jesus said that uh, he was the living water. And that was the same time they poured out. Oh, I've ritual water. I, I, okay, yes. Every, uh, every commentary I'm reading makes this point. I'll, I'll bring it out here. There is apparently, 
and I don't challenge the validity of this archaeological find. In, in extra-textual, in, in extra-biblical writings, the Talmuds and the commentaries of the rabbis and, and eyewitnesses of the time, there, would have, there was supposedly, and I don't challenge the reality of, a um, water-pouring ritual that would take place during the Feast of Booths on the Great Day. And it is further... Um, argued that Jesus times his statement, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, to time with that water-pouring ritual. That may entirely be accurate. I would argue John has no interest in that. John isn't sure we know what rabbi means, so he has to tell us. John isn't sure we know what the Sea of Galilee is, because he has to tell us it's the Sea of Tiberias. John is, in other words, evidencing he is supplementing our ignorance of Jewish customs. Not biblical information, but he doesn't trust we know what Messiah means. He doesn't trust we know what, what, what rabbi means. He doesn't trust we know what a bunch of these things mean. So that may be historically accurate, and there may be historical significance to Jesus doing that. I'm, I'm assuming if John wanted us to make that connection, the same John who tells us what rabbi and Messiah means would have told us about the water pouring ritual. So I don't think John has any interest in it in his text. Does that, does that distinction make sense? I'm sure Jesus said a lot more than he said here. And so Jesus may have meant and communicated 50 things. John's highlighting a dozen things. And I'm just saying one of the things John's not highlighting is the water pouring ritual because he doesn't mention it. No, I've got to work my way around. And all these books, I've got Jesus fulfilling the tabernacle, the Feast of Booths. They're all talking about this water pouring ritual. And, and here's, well, here's the other piece. If that's critical to the meaning of the text, then anywhere the church doesn't have that extra information, they can't understand this. So it is, it is neat to wonder. I wonder what Jesus also said. I wonder what implications he was making. I wonder what people there might have gotten out of it. But in the study of John's gospel, I've, I've intentionally avoided leaning on extra biblical information. So, so no, you're, you're dead right. Everyone talks about that. Everyone does. And my, I had a, no, I had a professor at a, in seminary. He gave a chapel lecture to us um, about using that text with the water pouring ritual and how Jesus is a great extemporaneous preacher and he took advantage of what was going on around him. And we too should do that. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, um, you, you think John wanted us to make that connection? He's like, oh yeah. John isn't sure we know what rabbi means. John needs to make sure we understand. Like he, John makes it clear he makes no assumptions. Further, no assumptions. John assumes we're ignorant of Jewish culture outside the Bible and Jewish terminology and language. And, and at multiple points, he gives us translations, he gives us meanings. Even the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, the, the Jews' Passover. Um, so to then turn around and argue that John wants us to make this connection when there's no mention of it, I, I struggle with. But no, what you're saying is, is I'm pretty much sure everyone's... But, but, Bible study notes mentions that, and virtually every commentary I read mentions that. I just methodologically struggle with it being anything in John's view. So does the distinction between the event itself and John's telling of the event make sense, what I'm talking about? Does, does that idea make sense? Yeah, sure. So Jesus does something, says something, and he might mean and to communicate a hundred things. 
and this is partly where we, where we harmonize the gospels, but each gospel writer they're telling is itself revelatory. And so you actually have kind of two horizons of revelation. Jesus does nothing but image the Father. So everywhere he goes, everything he does, Jesus eating a snack, Jesus taking a nap is imaging the Father. He's just revelations flowing out of him. He's just revealing the Father. We have spirit-inspired revelation about Jesus revealing. But what we have, our revelation is the text. John's telling for us is the revelation of what Jesus does, which is revealing. Does, does that make sense? So we have this revelatory written word. We have this text describing what Jesus does. And so we've got to make a distinction between what John is highlighting, what John wants us to see, where John points us, and we're paying attention to the details John supplies, like the fact that John supplies with the feeding of 5,000, what no other gospel writer supplies, that the Passover is drawing near. That's got to be significant. He wants us to know that. Um, And what he doesn't. And so the event itself could have far more significance than the writer wants us to get from it. The writer may just want to focus on one or two things in the event to draw our attention to. And there might be 50 things in the event. So as far as the water pouring ritual goes, it may well be completely sound and true that Jesus utilized that, did everything my professor said he did, and everything he said was spot on. My my only challenge is I don't think John's concerned with that in his telling of the event because... As we track him supplying information, we can start to reverse engineer what he thinks we know and what he thinks we don't know. It's why we've noticed that he thinks we know the story, because he makes all these references to things that you wouldn't know if you didn't know the basic story. Like in chapter six, he just talks about he said to the 12, as if he thinks we know who the 12 are. There's no antecedent. There's no explanation. Who are the 12? He assumes we know, just like he assumes we know John the Baptist was arrested. This happened before John was arrested. So on the one hand, John's writing to an audience, he thinks, likely know the major plot points, the major players. Yet with his constant translation of Jewish terminology, he does not think we are familiar with the Jewish language, Jewish geography. Doesn't think we know that. So he tells us the Sea of Galilee, well, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. You might know that. So given that then, would John have in mind his readers make the connection with autoporn ritual? I'd say no. I, I don't think you can argue he does. But, I mean, I just said a whole bunch, and if that's complicated, ask, ask me questions because I think it's significant, and if I'm communicating poorly, I'd like to clarify. Any questions? Okay, Chris is going to... Oh, so it's not about that. Okay. Um, so when you were talking about uh, Jesus' brother's uh, motivation for uh, urging him on to the feast. Um, you had mentioned it being similar to the folks that wanted to see more miracles. And I'm wondering if there's also the possibility that there's a sense in which they are challenging his arrival as Messiah and ushering in the new kingdom. Like if we get who you're saying you are, shouldn't you be displacing the government and arriving like Palm Sunday, you know, ready to take over and lead us to, you know, the kingdom that we've all been waiting for. Yeah. No, I know. I I think that's, that's part of it. If chapter six is about Jesus going from the peak of his popularity into decline, 
And now we jump ahead seven months. Yeah, I think the brothers don't like the trajectory we're on. Things were going up, now they're going down. So here's your opportunity, Jesus. Stop hanging out in the backwaters of Galilee where no one's going to see you. Go to Jerusalem. Go publicly to the feast. Do your miracles. Let your disciples see implication and things will get back on track. No, absolutely. And we know from the crowd, they want to make him king and we can plug in all the, the things that are going on with that. But yeah. I think that's what his brothers are, are basically doing. But in that sense, then, his brothers are giving him the same counsel the crowd did that said, give us more food. Give them what they want. They want the miracles. Go to Jerusalem, do the miracles, and the disciples who've fallen away might return, something like that. Because I mean, otherwise, why would, there be, why would there be disciples in Jerusalem who aren't seeing him? Well, presumably the ones who fell away. That's the only sense I can make out of it. Does that, I mean, does that make sense? Okay, okay. Oh, Renee. So I'm confused about um, Zechariah 14, 16. It says, uh, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I thought we as believers dwelt in Jerusalem. Yes, we, so Revelation, the book of Revelation gives more detail. When Jesus yes. comes to fight the nations, he comes with an army dressed in white. That's us. So we arrive with him. These are people who've converted from the attacking army or from the peoples, whether they're part of the army or not. Um, these are people who, who come to faith prior to the Lord's return, but after the events in the book of Revelation begin. And so there will be converts in that time. We know that the Lord seals 144,000 to go out and proclaim an eternal gospel. These would be the types of people who came to faith through that gospel proclamation. So those are the newer believers, new believers yes. coming to yes. Yes. Jerusalem. Yes. Okay. So those people enter the kingdom alive and mortal. And they're going to have kids. And their kids are going to have kids and there's going to be a generation that rises up that doesn't know God. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Well, the timing can get somewhat complicated, but yeah. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? If not, then we're going to talk. Oh, Zach. If you don't want to talk about this, that's fine. It just kind of got me thinking about um, yeah. when you were saying how Jesus images the Father all the time, but we only have what the gospel writers or other yeah. Bible writers yeah. wrote about what Jesus did and said. Right. So this situation probably doesn't exist, but I was just kind of thinking, what if we had some manuscript that was found that wasn't in the Bible, that was about something Jesus did or said, and it was thought to be credible that it was, you know, an accurate telling of what Jesus did or said, then what would that mean? We, we, we might just have something like that coming up in chapter eight. But, um, okay. Uh -huh. Well, no, the, the, the account of the woman caught in adultery, I'll argue this when we get to it. It probably happened. John may even have written it. 
it doesn't fit in John's gospel. And where it does show up in our manuscript traditions, it's all over the place. It shows up in, like, it, it appears as though the early copyists and scribes didn't know where to put this. We got it showing up in the gospel of Luke. We've got it showing up in different places in John. But the antiquity of it and the reverence with which the copyists gave it, it, it likely, almost certainly did happen. It may well be scripture. It may well be God-breathed. It, it's simply... I would argue, not part of the composition of John's gospel. It clearly breaks the flow of the narrative. So what you're describing may well be what's going on there. No, if we had credible accounts of Jesus, there might be some something profitable in that. Um, Jesus does nothing but evidence the Father. But on the flip side, Scripture is sufficient. So all, thing, all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped, competent for every good work. So if we had such record, it wouldn't be essential or necessary. But if we had trustworthy, reliable information about something Jesus did or said, it, it might prove edifying. It might prove interesting. But um, yeah. We, to flip to flip this around, the, the point to make is, and so I, I like John MacArthur. I went to his school, but John MacArthur, when he would teach the Gospels, would just do nothing but harmonize. He'd take, he, if he was teaching John anything Matthew, anything Luke, anything Mark had to bear would come to the table, and what his clear goal was was to get the most fully informed, most uh, all the details version of the event. And there's a use in that understanding the event. So all four Gospels share records of the feeding of the 5,000, so we could have the most full, complete understanding of the feeding of the 5,000. And that's fine. The, the, the subtle thing to note, and I think it's fine when Jesus is your object, because Jesus himself does nothing but reveal the Father, is you're no longer studying a text. The text becomes a means to the event. And so any piece of information you can get well, that'll shed light on that event you want, which is also why you're going to bring in archaeological information, why you're going to bring in the Talmuds, why you're going to bring in tradition, because what, the, the implicit assumption is I want to understand what happened in that event. For lack of a better term, we have a magic telling of the event. We have a supernaturally inspired, revelatory, living word describing it. And it's the description of the event that is the revelation for us. Now, it's, it's not to say the event's unimportant, but we have, a ma- we have a, I'll use magic for lack of a better term. We have a magic telling of magic events. And that's the thing to focus, and I'm trying to make this the distinction. John's telling of this is revelation. And what Jesus does in the narrative is revelation. And so there's two panes of glass. There's whatever Jesus does is revealing the Father, but John's telling for us is the revelation. The text we have is the revelation. Does that make sense? And so at least not losing sight of one or the other. I think, I think it's great to do a harmony of the Gospels. Realize when you're harmonizing the Gospels, you're not really studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You're studying the totality of the information to understand what happened. Because we're not, I mean, we're not saved by a telling of a crucifixion. We're saved by a crucifixion. So the events matter. Um, but as we're going through the Gospels, we're studying John, right? And so it's John's telling that I'm trying to pay attention. What is John highlighting? What does John supply for information? Where does John want us to look? Where does John speed up? Where does he slow down? I mean, we could have gone into detail about what took place in those six or seven months between the uh, feeding of the 5,000 and 
going to the Feast of Booths. Luke fills in a lot of that. The Mount of Transfiguration happens. Peter's great confession happens. Jesus setting his face for Jerusalem happens. John isn't interested in that, so I didn't mention it because we're studying John. But if you want to harmonize the Gospels and you figure out where all that stuff happened, it's interesting to note, oh, yeah, he, this is the stuff he did during those six months. Um, so keeping, it's, keeping the distinction is all I'm trying to mainly do. So if you mention a water, that could have happened. Now we're studying archaeology. That's cool. You know, um, and learning what might have happened there. And so there can be some edifying value in saying, hey, if this water pouring ritual information is accurate, then yeah, I guess Jesus probably did say that just about that time. That's interesting. That's cool. Sure. It's just not part of the John Bible study. It's part of our archaeological research, which is a totally valid and useful thing. I just want to keep the compartment separate so we understand what we're doing at any given time. Does that... And yeah, would that be like just different ways of studying the Bible? Of yeah. like, right, what we're doing is going through a specific book yeah. at a time versus like yeah. zooming in on specific events yeah. and studying them or say harmonizing the Gospels and going through mm. everything we know that Jesus did in chronological order or something right. like no, that. No, no, that, that's really cool. There's people who've done that. Yeah, absolutely. Chris? Yeah, I just want to make sure if I'm synthesizing what you're saying properly, the the events that we're looking at being described by the word of god those events are not to be taken as the word of god that separate category they're the backdrop that the word of god is commenting on but when god uses a biblical author to narrate the event and draw our attention to key things and discard other things from the narrative we're receiving god's commentary on the event which is his word yes so if we didn't have his commentary on it, if we just had a video camera and we witnessed the event, we may entirely miss what God wanted us to see from it, even though we saw everything he was going to describe. We may not understand it. The, the only caveat I want to throw in is everything Jesus does is the word of God and everything he speaks is the word of God. So at one point we do have the Holy Spirit inspiring a writer to tell us the third member of the Trinity inspires an author to tell us what the second member of the Trinity said. Sure. So there is a double pane of glass when Jesus is speaking. With him specifically, yes. right. But all the rest yes. of the event yes. could be superfluous information that might be interesting detail, yeah. but is not to be mistaken for the Co word correct, of God, right? Correct, correct. Okay. We, we don't have a video of that. We, we have a limited telling. And so what the telling is limited to is what we want to pay. I mean, and John says as much at the end. Go to, go to John 21. Um, John makes this distinction plain. He freely admits, I didn't tell you everything. Because he couldn't. 21-25. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John freely acknowledges he has selected material and he's limited material. And he tells us why at the end of chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing me have life in his name. So when we study John, then we are studying the subset of events in Jesus' life that John hand chose to tell us and i'm just saying let's limit it to that then if as we study john 
And we can harmonize John with Luke and Matthew and everything else, and we can get a fuller understanding of the life of Christ. But if John says, hey, I handpicked this information, then let's stick with what he highlights and what he doesn't highlight, what he draws attention to, what he doesn't draw attention to, and try to... So when I'm reading John, my, my, my goal is, what does John want me to see? What does John want me to take away from this? What does John want to communicate? So working through Jesus' brothers, the, the way I work through understanding what they're saying is, in John's telling of it, it seems evident he assumes we would see the unbelief in what they're saying. It's why he makes the explanation that even his brothers didn't believe. Almost as if we had to say, how could someone who's a believer say that? No, 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 don't worry. So then that helps inform limiting what they must mean by this. That if, if John is assuming that when we read what they say, he needs to explain and justify that because we're supposed to be surprised or confused. No, don't, don't worry. They weren't believers. They didn't believe. That's helping direct my reading or my interpretation of what they're saying. And so looking for the author to give me markers, looking for the author to give direction of how to read and take things is where I'm looking to try to find meaning and authorial intent. So, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, if that, questions on that? Because I know this can be complicated. I'm doing a lot of talking, which is never a good sign. Um, the temptation for us is to um, seek secret outside information that suddenly changes everything. The, the temptation for us is to think that if we find some pot in, in Corinth, or we find something, then that'll change everything. But there's big implication problems if that works. I'll give you, I'll give you an example to try to highlight this. Um, if you turn to Revelation 3 and you got a study Bible, I'm going to give you dimes to dollars what your note says about Laodicea and the hot and cold water. It's going to say that there are hot springs in Laodicea. There are. And that there is Roman aqueduct water. There was. And so the, the, the question then in Revelation 3, when Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, is what is meant by hot and cold? Clearly, it's an analogy. And there's two possibilities. There might be a third, but I'm only aware of two. One is they're antithetical, they're antithesis, they're opposites, hot and cold. Hot would, so under this reading, Jesus is saying something like, I wish you were either for me or against me. I wish you'd make up your mind and stop sitting on the fence. I wish you'd either be all in or all out. And because you're half-hearted, because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, for the people who find a big significance with the hot springs in Laodicea and the cold Roman aqueduct water, they argue hot and cold are parallel good things. Hot is therapeutic, like a spa. That's good. That's useful. And cold is refreshing, like a cold glass of water. But what's useless is where the hot waters and the cold waters mingle and you get like a muddy, gunky, swampy place. Well, that's a different reading of the text. What is Jesus telling the church at Laodicea? What is Jesus telling us he wants us to be? Is he saying, I want you to be good and hot and therapeutic or cold and refreshing? In other words, he's not contrasting good and bad. He's putting two goods forward. This is a good thing. This is a good thing in the middle. Or is he saying, 
I'd rather you be for me or against me. Make up your mind. Those are two different readings of the text. And if you, if you go with the view with the hot springs and the cold springs being decisive, which I've heard people say, and, and preachers I love and admire, I love Vodi Bauckham, and I got a clip of him saying this like verbatim, this is one of those places that if you do not have the historical background and you do not have the archaeological background, you cannot understand this letter to Laodicea. And I'm really thankful he said that because I've been arguing for a decade or more um, with some, some people that that is the unescapable conclusion. But let me say that again. He's saying, and that methodology is saying, I, I appreciate his honesty. Most, most guys don't want to say that. I'll press them to say that. And they won't say it. Vody completely, I, I appreciate his boldness. In this section, the Bible requires a supplement to be understood. That's what he's saying. You need the Bible plus archaeological information. You need the Bible plus extra biblical information to understand it. Necessarily, every place and at every time the church has not had this supplemental information, they necessarily cannot understand the passage and will understand it at the wrong. I have a problem with that implication. I have a real problem with that implication. I don't think the Bible needs supplements. And I think, especially in the Gospels, where John evidences that he will give us supplemental information when he thinks we need it. I mean, get that. So, so go to John 1. I'll share what I mean. Um, again, I want to take my cues from the writer. So, um, John chapter 1. I think the first time we see it is here in verse 38. John 1, 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. What is that? That's the author supplying contextual supplemental information so we can understand. Then we go to verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Supplemental information that we might understand. And he does that consistently. He does it again in 42. He brought him Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. And I could show you example after example of that. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Open brackets. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, close brackets. Wow, that was helpful, John. In other words, the question is, if John is showing us he is making efforts to give us the extra information he thinks we're going to need, my question is, does he do a good job or a bad job of that? Does he do a sufficient job of that or does he need help? If the author is showing us that he is intentionally supplying extra information when he thinks we're going to need it to understand him, how good of a job is he, does he do? Good job. Okay. That's my operating assumption. So my operating assumption is John is going to tell me what I need to know to understand him, um, at least when it comes to Jewish backgrounds. Now, on the other hand, because John evidences that we may know the Gospels, I do think Referencing the other Gospels may well be fair, because 
there's no way you're going to know who the 12 are by reading John. Other than Jesus has some people he calls the 12. The only way you're going to know who the 12 are is by reading the other Gospels. Or if you're in the first century, maybe hearing oral reports. So John does evidence that he thinks his readers may have some extra information about the life and death of Jesus. And so in that sense, fair enough. You're not going to understand. When he says John hadn't yet been arrested, but he nowhere tells us that John gets arrested. He just references it like he thinks we're tracking. So in that sense, fair enough, let's, let's bring in the other Gospels to help make sense of some of this stuff. That seems fair. But I'm trying to get my cues from who John thinks he's writing. This is why when we started the Gospel of John study, I think I spent the better part of one whole message trying to profile what does John assume about his readers? What does he think we know and what does he think we don't know? Well, he thinks we know our Old Testament. He thinks we know who Peter is. He thinks we know who the 12 are. He thinks we know that John got arrested, but he doesn't think we know a bit of Jewish terminology, words, or geography. He doesn't think we know that. Okay. And then that's giving me my approach on how to study the gospel. So anyway, that, that's my longer argument for the sufficiency of scripture is that if the author is evidencing that he's giving us the information, he's taking pains to translate terms, to supply background information, I'm going to trust that he's going to do a good job of that, and I'm going to trust that he's going to tell me what I need to know to understand him. Anyway, no, thank you, Jerry, for asking a great question. This is, this is important. I, I, uh, the temptation is always, and people get excited when they find archaeological, and archaeology is cool. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But the temptation is that this changes everything. Oh, this finally makes sense of that. And okay, could we not understand it before? That's that's the, the thing we gotta rebel with. So anyway, we are at time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. God bless, Godspeed, and good day.